Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 39, and Swampo has just mortared Katima Mulilu as revenge for the airborne assault on Kasinga. Ten SADF troops died in the bombardment, as you've heard. A single red-eye rocket accounted for the deaths as the men huddled in a prefabricated building in the early hours of 23rd August 1978. Combat Team Bravo had set off about an hour after the bombing of Katimu, and as we've heard, they found that Swapo had retreated from their forward bases. However, Combat Team Alpha was going to find things a little hotter. They set out at dawn on the 24th and crossed the cutline at 0705, and half an hour later caught up with Swapo's rear guard. Fire was exchanged without any losses, and then just before 8am the Combat Team ran into an ambush. A high volume of small arms fire was set loose in Alpha's direction and they returned fire, killing five Swapo troops, but around 50 others made it off into the bush. Just after 8am, Alpha discovered a Swapo base, but it had already been hastily evacuated. Helicopter support was called in and at 0925, another group of Swapo was discovered a short distance away. Six more were killed in that sharp exchange. Meanwhile, the paratroopers had arrived from South Africa and were choppered in to be used as a stopper group north of another base. Combat Team Alpha moved in and overran that base, killing another seven Swapo soldiers. One of the SADF troops was also wounded. Nothing more was reported, and then Alpha bivouacked in the bush close to the paratroopers, who also settled in for the night west of their position. The next morning, they were on the move early and found a Mercedes-Benz lorry near the Ngwezi Pools area, which was loaded with 82mm mortar bombs, three cases of 14.5mm ammunition, and 25 RPG-7 missiles, as well as other equipment. While Swapo was on the run, the Zambians were a completely different kettle of fish. They had begun to mortar Katima Mulilo once more, and artillery was also now involved. Because the Zambians had moved their SA-7 anti-aircraft missile positions, the SADF had completely missed these in their follow-up operations. Starting before dawn, they had been peppering the base once more after holding fire for a few hours. Because the SA Air Force was likely to deploy aircraft overhead in bombing raids, Katima's 140mm battery began homing in on the Zambian SA-7s, eventually silencing all of it. The SADF believed they had been hit, but it's not true. All that happened was the Zambians decided it was safer to hold their fire. Then, at 0730, the Zambians at Sasheki opened fire with their mortars once again, and the SADF responded with their own mortar fire. This was a long-distance duel, which continued until past 10 that morning. A meeting was taking place in Lusaka at around the same time, involving the Zambian National Defense Force High Command, who decided to send reinforcements to the Sananga Front. They also planned to dispatch a battalion for deployment on the Zambian Western Front to prevent the SADF from crossing the Zambezi River. The SADF was also busy clearing small villages of any vehicles they could find and equipment. While they found nothing of significance, for some reason the raiders seized muskets and 375 caliber big game weapons along with medical supplies. They took away two buses, a Mercedes lorry, a Ford three-ton truck, a Land Rover and Zambian flags. That of course was rather punitive, the flag bit. Later, they tried to return the looted goods, but Zambians preferred to ignore the SAD of calls for people to come and retrieve their personal belongings. Anyway, at 1414, another long-range duel was logged when Zambians at Sasheke fired an anti-aircraft shell and two mortar bombs at a Super Frelin helicopter which had just landed at Katima Molilo. It was carrying generals Fulun, Rogers, Gleason and Geldenhuis, as well as the Southwest African Namibian Administrator General Judge Martinus Stein. Moments later, 
The SADF 140mm guns dropped six shells on the Zambians' positions, silencing them once more. The SADF, though, was only just getting started. While most civilians in the south of Zambia abutting the Caprivi had now fled, General Milan back in Pretoria gave a new order at 1800 hours that night. He wanted another follow-up operation to drive at least 100 kilometers north of the cut line into Zambia between the Zambezi and Kwando rivers. But the troops had only until midnight on the 25th of August to complete that assignment. There was a bit of to and fro. Eventually the date was extended to the 28th, but Pretoria was growing more nervous about a Security Council debate in the UN following the clashes of the last 24 hours. In the end, the South Africans didn't extend as far as 100 kilometers north of the cutline, and most of the follow-up operation was conducted into empty bases. Swapo had disappeared into the bush, a bit like the Boers used to do against the British during the Anglo-Boer War, living to fight another day. Still, the SA Air Force bombed a few of these empty bases for good measure. By August 26th, only one base had shown any inclination to fight, and that was a Zambian Defence Force base at Tsinzenbele. An anti-aircraft gun base there opened up on the SA Air Force helicopters, and after they used their large loudspeakers to warn the Zambians this was a fight against Swapo, Bravo Group's gunners knocked out the weapon, although no Zambian soldier was actually killed or wounded as they had sought shelter when the return fire began. Some of the bases the SADF raided had been empty for longer than a fortnight, so it was with some frustration that the battle groups headed back south of the cutline, which they crossed just after 2am on August 27th. 16 Swapo were confirmed dead, but remember the SADF had lost 10 themselves in the Katima Mulilo barrage. This incident had shaken the South African citizens' belief in the political leadership, despite what the SABC propaganda machine was pumping out at the time. The events had set in motion a process that was to cause Swapo some grief as well. As they launched their bombing attack, Austrian General Hannes Philipp was in Southwest Africa and he was the designated commander of a proposed UN peacekeeping force. He was supposed to be coordinating the force and supervising upcoming elections in accordance with UN Resolution 435. The general was being kept abreast of the latest Swapo attack and the Katima Mulilo bombing was not good news for Swapo in the broader scheme of things. They were also now regarded as loose cannons by some neutral observers. From a tactical point of view, the entire Operation Reindeer and the follow-ups, including Swapo's revenge operation, had been watched with much interest by the airborne community around the world. The United States, UK, Soviet Union, France, Germany and Israel all had significant airborne forces at the time. Most of these were airlifted in and out of operations using helicopters, while some were still parachute-trained. So the decision by the SADF to drop over 340 paratroopers onto a town 250 kilometers behind enemy lines was studied closely. Kasinga and Reindeer's tactical and operational effect on the border war itself was not considerable. I know that some I've spoken to will take issue with this. However, we really have to analyze war as part of politics. Anything else is just boys with bayonets letting off steam or the act of mercenaries who kill for the love of killing and a fast buck. That may be a professional's motivation, but in the end, there has to be an end. Your means create that end, and that end has to be political. And because of this, Pretoria had failed. Yet now, the military hawks in the National Party were ascendant. P.W. Boerter, Magnus Malan, and the head of the army, Constant Fulun. 
All were deeply influenced by a military solution which they believed would defeat both Swapu and the ANC and PAC back home in a kind of warped political logic. Warped because all these men really cared about was remaining in political power by grandstanding to their folk. So what if a few hundred white males died for their skewed political strategy? I interviewed P.W. Butcher years later at his home in George after he'd been booted from power by F.W. de Klerk in a cabinet rebellion and P.W. was very clear about what he expected. If whites wanted power, he said, they should fight and their young men die for this apartheid principle. He, of course, could make this grandiose statement because he was too old to jump out of a puma and would never personally be called on to face an AK-47 or RPG at close range. There's always some decaying politician somewhere enjoying the luxurious trappings of power who calls for violence or war from the safety of their bulletproof limousine. Boerter's own life, though, had been deeply influenced by war, although he had no direct military experience. His mother was a survivor of the British concentration camps during the Anglo-Boer War, and Boerter himself joined the militarized Osava Brandfach, which supported the Nazis during the Second World War. He then fell out with the movement when they supported the Nazi invasion of Russia in 1941, and from then on, Boerter committed himself to Christian nationalism instead of national socialism. Well, back to the SADF, which needed an upgrade in 1979, including more bulletproofing. So it was then that 44 Parachute Brigade was created consisting of three parachute battalions, up later to four. They would be supported by a 120mm mortar battery and support troops, all parachute trained. This entire brigade could be dropped behind enemy lines except for one logistic reality. The SADF did not have enough Air Force airlifting capacity, not enough planes or choppers. So for the remainder of the war, paratroopers would be driven around as motorized infantry or dropped behind swapper insurgents as stopper groups. The fact that Kasinga had been on the brink of disaster unnerved the high command and enthusiastic paratrooper commanders like Colonel Jan Breitenbach, Frank Bespeard, Archie Moore and Mac Alexander could not convince the SADF otherwise. What was regarded as a clear case of success was the overland attack by motorized units that had focused on Chitakweta. The rattle had been baptized during this attack and it was much more meaningful in its overall effect on future planning and the rifle design itself was to change slightly based on the Chetaguera leg of Operation Reindeer. The SADF also realized that their radio system was defunct. The general troopy on the ground found it difficult to maintain contact with their air support, and they found it even more difficult communicating with each other. New radio equipment would be needed to solve this, but it was not immediately available. Swapo had learned a few lessons too. They'd been static in Kasinga at a base laid out with bunkers and trenches and buildings easily identifiable by air. Not exactly the cleverest way to create a non-conventional defendable position. After this, Swapo would make things more difficult for the SADF by spreading their bases out over a much larger area with covered bunkers replacing buildings and everything was now camouflaged. Swapo also began moving their bases around so that SADF intelligence became outdated quickly. By early 1979, General Heldenhays admitted that the plan and Swapo decision to atomize their bases, moving them about and away from each other, had totally disturbed the intelligence picture we had built up. 
General Yanni Heldenes wrote later that the entire episode had a wider impact than merely bringing an end to insurgency in Caprivi. It had an impact on the war in Angola itself. He was now fully supportive of the concept of a permanent mechanized unit in northern Southwest Africa that could be used in future cross-border ops. Battle Group Juliet had been an ad hoc outfit as it headed towards Chetequeda in May 1978. So now the heavy equipment would be stored in Grootfontein to be used by another ad hoc unit when the opportunity arose. In October 1978, General Constant Falun appointed the first commander of a permanent mechanized warfare unit in the operational area. And of course, Commandant Johann Odippi Stipanar was the man to lead it. And so 61 mechanized battalion group came into being on January 1st, 1979, consisting of two mechanized infantry companies in Rattle 20s, an armored car troop in Irland 90s, later they'd be traveling in the powerful Rattle 90s, also embedded a 140mm G2 battery from 4 Artillery Field Regiment, a support company and a combat engineer troop from 16 Maintenance Unit. Later on, a tank squadron was also added, but that's for later. 61 Mech, as it was known, was established in a remote area of Avambalant called Amutia, where their maneuvers were out of sight. And 61 Mech was a totally new idea in the SADF. Instead of an orthodox battalion or armoured regiment being brought together along with artillery, it was a single unit on a battalion and regimental level. This unit's first action would take place in June 1980 during Operation Skeptic, and after that, every single operation across the border would see 61 Mech taking part. Furthermore, three other units, including 2SI, 4SI and 8SI, would be moulded on the 61 Mech template. Back to politics. And by now, the United Nations regarded Swapo as the sole representative of the people of Namibia. Southwest Africa Commander Yanni Geldnes was at pains to point out to UN officials on the ground that the People's Liberation Army of Namibia, Swapo's armed wing, was behind the bombardment of Katimumulilu. And as we know, the only building hit in the town was a school. However, the residents of Katima Mulilu blamed the South Africans, saying the bombing of their school only took place because they'd set up a military base there. For Swapo, there were now serious questions about its strategy. The Zambians were less than happy about being put in harm's way. In the meantime, the political process had ground to a halt. There was no way that UN Resolution 435 could be implemented and the hoped-for negotiated settlement had reached an impasse, so it was decided to call for elections in 1978 anyway. The South Africans, of course, knew that Swapo would not be involved, so it was safe to go ahead. Swapo duly announced it would not participate, and furthermore, it would launch a plan to wreck the elections. Given the violence already taking place across Ovumberland and southern Angola, this did not bode well. While the SADF tried to increase security, it was not possible. Attacks, mining of roads, and the killing of South African-linked officials dragged on through the rest of the year. As P.W. Boota wanted, the military option in Southwest Africa and Namibia had not yet played out. More blood and tears would flow. Thousands more would die. Turning to the political effect, P.W. Boota had now replaced John Foster as Prime Minister, and Boota was all for bloodletting. He immediately authorized two more cross-border raids, Rekstok into Angola and Safran into Zambia, which was set for March 1979. The buffeting of this region was eventually going to prove too much for Zambian President Kenneth Kaunda, who was embarrassed by Swapo's presence in his country. Consequently, he halted all planned military action in his territory. And a pattern had begun to develop. 
During the rainy season, insurgency would increase as Swapo used the thicker bush and easy access to water. It was extremely difficult to find their bases during the summer. Tracks would wash away. Vegetation would hide movement. The SADF figured out that their conventional cross-border raids would have to take place in the dry winter months when it was easier to move vehicles around. And it was easier to spot danger by air and ground. Planned forces used the winter to regroup and retrain, which was therefore an attractive time to aim for their bases. While all of this was going on, the SADF had managed to build an advanced capability in radio communication interception. Swapo, the Cubans and FAPLA never fully realized this, but the majority of their radio messages were being intercepted and some decrypted. The technique employed to monitor the decryption was interesting. It was a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. The SADF never managed an entire interception. It was always small chunks that would build a pattern, and from there, the SADF would build intelligence. Of course, the Cubans, Fapla and Swapo were doing the same in reverse. Most SADF vets in the signaling corps deny this was of any significance. However, it cannot be denied that the enemy was receiving state-of-the-art support from the Soviets and Eastern Germans, amongst others. Swapo and Plan's deployment also shifted at this time. The headquarters of Swapo's armed force was at Lubango, the town we heard about during Operation Savannah. That was where the Tobias Hanyeko training center could be found. Swapo had also divvied up the three fronts, western, central and eastern. In the west, units were headquartered at Kahama. The central forces were organized from Kublai and the eastern front was managed from Gluma and Puturonanga. In addition, Swapo had a small mechanized brigade of its own, which was based far behind the cut line to the north, about 2,500 men strong, and this spent most of its time fighting UNITA. Swapo had four semi-conventional battalions of between 100 and 350 men around Kasinga as well. Plan was mostly stationed in Kuneni province in southwestern Angola, and that's where the SEDF would attack regularly over the next few years. And now, Swapo launched its next important strategic tactic, which was to send trained men and women through Avambaland in order to target the areas further south, the rich farming areas. These were the lands around Grootfontein, Tsumeb and Otavi, and the idea was to terrorize white farmers and politicize their workers. The first attack of significance was coming up in the next year, the 8th of May, 1979, when 30 insurgents crossed the cut line and attacked two farmhouses and killed a grandfather, a grandmother and two young children. That would be answered by an attack by 61 Mech, as we'll hear. Once again, Swapo held the initiative, and in February 1979, they made their move. That's for next episode. If you'd like to make contact, send me an email by my site, abwarpodcast.com, or you can direct message me on Twitter, at Deslaven. Until next, was bait and tot scenes. Thank you.